Welcome to Men Are Nuts, a podcast about mental health, emotional health, psychological health and physical health in men and society. M-A-N, first it started with man, then it went to men. Men are nuts. And we have a very special guest on the show for you today. Will you introduce yourself? Well, hello, hello, everyone. Thank you so much, um, Andrew, for your work, and thank you for accommodating the late hour. I know it's late where you're at. Yeah. My name is Flavio Ballerini. I'm a hypnotherapist, a coach. I'm a former scientist. I used to be a college professor, taught biomedical engineering many, many years ago, but yeah. for the past uh, 23 years, I've been a hypnotist, helping people overcome emotional trauma or changing habits or as i say helping people live the life they really want to live by changing their minds about themselves so most recently i published my third book which is called awesome again in which i outline a method that i've been using at the office for over 20 years to help men recover their vitality and um, become the men they're meant to be because as you said it seems to me, from the perspective of a therapist, that many men are somewhat wounded, and by that I mean emotionally wounded. And as a result, we end up behaving sometimes more like a grown-up boy, in a sense. Yeah. And I don't mean this critically, because, because I'm one of those. You know, I, I'm one of those who totally broke down and totally behaved as a boy for most of my life, really. Until I began to study these things and um, and pay more attention to the work that I was doing with clients and uh, and also recover my own sanity, really, after I broke down. And, uh, and I think that it has been a good thing because recovering from the breakdown gave me the opportunity to build a life from scratch, basically. Yeah. And it's a better life now. So, yeah. so life has a way of being magical in that sense. So, Flavio... Your accent, and, and I'm, am I saying your name right, Flavio? Flavio? Flavio. Yeah, yeah, that is correct. Your name and, you know, whereabouts, in fact, whereabouts are you in the world now for the listeners to work in? Whereabouts are you living? So I live right now in a city called Pembroke Pines, which is just north of Miami in the state of Florida in the United States. I'm about 30 miles north of Miami. And um, I was born in Brazil, in Sao Paulo, and I came to the United States around the age of 15. We moved to Minneapolis in the state of Minnesota, in the north of the United States, because my father was transferred. He worked for a company called Honeywell, and the family moved to Minneapolis back in the very early 1980s, 1980 or 81. And um, so I, I finished high school in the United States, and then I went to college, the University of Minnesota, then we moved to Florida, and I've been here ever since. Wow. So you're from Brazil? You're from... I was born in Brazil, yes. yes. It, yeah, it's interesting. It's, I, I, I'm now learning to reconnect with my Brazilian roots. Yeah. In January, just a couple months ago, I was in Brazil for a couple of weeks, and uh, I went to a retreat in Brazil, which was really, really beautiful. Yeah. And um, I'm learning to reconnect with Brazilian people, Brazilian food, the Brazilian culture, you know. But for many years, I lived um, somewhat immersed in the American culture, and I have children and work and so forth, you know, so we kind of forget about that. But recently, I've, I've wanted to get more and more in touch with that uh, 
cult, you know, the culture of origin where I was born, and it's been really fantastic. It's been very rejuvenating for me. Right. Yeah. So is you 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 you're Brazilian. You've gone to America, and now you're starting to feel like there's there's the roots in a sense of 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 yes. that, that Brazilian roots. And you say you haven't you hadn't been back for a while. Then is it a long time you haven't been back for? Well, I was in Brazil in January of 2020. Yeah. But prior to that, the previous time I had been there was 2006. So it was almost uh, it was a good um, it was about 13 and a half years yeah. that I didn't go to Brazil at all, and so I sort of disconnected from the culture. Really, yeah. I don't really follow the news or anything. But recently, I went for one trip, and it was fascinating. Yeah, and what was it? What What was it like in terms of the change or the things that you've seen? It was anything different from when you went the first time till now? Well, I went to Brazil this last time after a personal breakdown. You know, I was uh, divorced. You know, like six or seven months after a divorce. And I was still very affected, very troubled emotionally and, and, and really spiritually yeah. because of the divorce. And um, so I wasn't, for one thing, I wasn't eating well, I wasn't sleeping well. So when I went to Brazil, I began to sleep better and eat better, for one thing, for starters. You know, I relaxed, I guess my nervous system sort of relaxed a little. And the smell of Brazilian food and the Brazilian people, you know, somehow reminded me of childhood, I guess. And yeah. I was able to relax and both sleep better. And I began to eat actual meals because for a while there I was just snacking, you know, and that's not healthy, obviously. So, you know, all of that stress, you know, disrupts the way a person eats and digests food and so forth. And that, of course, has a lot to do with the emotions as well. If you're not eating well, if you're not resting well, of course, your emotions are going to be all over the place and we cannot be effective men in the world if we don't eat and sleep properly. So one of the benefits that I got from this trip was being able to sleep and, um, and eat better. I also made a, a, quite a few friends, you know, new friends in my life yeah. and um, who have been fantastic and I learned the importance of support and friendships. You know, I, I'm 53 years of age and I don't think I knew the value, the real value of true friends. I guess, I, you know, when I was younger, I guess I thought of friends as just entertainment, you know, something that to do to entertain yourself, talk to friends. And because I was more like into studying and reading, you know, I didn't really have a lot of friends, you know, it was yeah. just an unnecessary entertainment thing. But then life taught me a lesson that it isn't about vain entertainment it's about support it's about understanding it's about growth about learning you know so I, I learned a whole lot from meeting new people adults who are also interested in personal growth and we keep in touch i uh, got a girlfriend of the process we we have some wonderful we've had vacations in the caribbean uh, since my trip recently you know so it's been it's been a fantastic opportunity to 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 sort of rejuvenate and um, and learn that life has so many beautiful things to offer, you know, such as something apparently as simple as a good friend. Yeah, yeah. So take us, take us, um, take the listeners back and take us back to 
you know, your childhood in Brazil and, and you, you spoke about and, you, and you're talking about what led you to this, what's led you to this point and then to write your books and all those sorts of things. So kind of take us back through your childhood in Brazil and, and then some of the things that may have happened to you on the way um, that, you know, like you said, maybe led to the breakdown and things like that. Yeah, it's a very, thank you. It's a very, very powerful question and it's an emotional one for me still, but it's a powerful question. And it's interesting because I've been working for 23 years as a hypnotist and people come over, you know, I work six days a week. People come over with all kinds of current problems and we hypnotize them and invariably a person lands in childhood. But notice, I never made the connection between my own childhood and my own present life. An adult you know I worked with this on a daily basis 10 sessions a day but I never made that connection I thought I was fine everything's perfect you yeah. know and so I went through a divorce as I mentioned earlier and I was way more devastated than you would expect in other words you know here I am as an adult sort of breaking down completely as a result of a divorce from a marriage that really didn't work of course you wouldn't expect that level of dysfunction from what really happened there because not much happened you know it wasn't such a big deal and yet i was completely broken down completely devastated so of course that led me into a profound sense of search and 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 from all points of view you know spiritual and also psychological you know what really brought me to that marriage in the first place what made me stay for so long how come i was in an abusive relationship where i was the victim of abuse and um, and, and, and and all kinds of things happened there you know so of course i began to uncover some of my own childhood experiences and this is something that i'm very careful about talking only because i don't want it ever to come across as me blaming anyone you know but the facts of the situation were that i grew up in an environment or in a household where there was violence and um, as a child we don't really notice that we think that that's just the way life is so when children are beat up and and abused and uh, in many ways neglected you know we just grow up thinking okay that's how life is and that pain of, of the physical abuse, of the neglect, that pain becomes stored in the unconscious mind. And we grow out of that. I left the house, went to college. You know, I was sort of lucky in this regard because I really enjoy studying. So I went to I have a doctorate in medical in biomedical engineering. I went to medical school. I enjoy studying. I have a degree in philosophy, which really helps me at work. I, in other words, I, I really enjoyed uh, studying, and that really kept me busy, learning and excited, and not really thinking about my own childhood. When I was younger, up until I was 23. I also liked athletics and I competed. So competition, I think, is really healthy because uh, I was busy. You know, you want to be the best. You want to win. So you have to sleep. You have to eat healthy. You have to be, you have to train, you know. So between school and training for athletic events, I was busy not thinking much about my childhood. So then I had my first marriage that ended in a divorce. And I figured, okay, I got to pay attention to this because uh, obviously I'm, contributed to this divorce let me do some therapy here and heal and i healed many things i think i I think i became a better man after that divorce you know and 12 years after 
my first divorce, I met another woman, married her, had two babies with her. So I have two babies from a first marriage and two babies from a second marriage or yeah. two children from each marriage. And, um, and that second marriage turned out to be a copy of my childhood. But because it was a copy of my childhood, I never noticed, just as a boy, just as a little boy, I never noticed that it wasn't quite right. Yeah. You know, it wasn't quite right. So I was ashamed, for instance, of being the recipient of physical violence. But I'm talking about like beatings, actual beatings. Yeah. And I was so ashamed of it that not only I could not talk about it, but I couldn't really escape it. I couldn't really leave it. I couldn't really go because like, how would I justify to myself breaking a marriage? You know, I would have to say to myself, well, she's beating me up. I would have to acknowledge that to myself, you know? So I was in denial as is typical of children, of course, you know, and uh, gradually I got into a depression within the marriage. And as a result of the depression, I became more and more of an infant, and I don't mean this uh, literally, but what I mean is, I she kind mean. of took, on, yeah, she kind of took on characteristics that I would associate with my mother, in a yeah. sense, you know, yeah. um, right down to like you know, preparing food for me. You know, I've, I've always been very independent, but I became sort of dependent, really, you know. And it wasn't until later, after I left and after the divorce, that I began to really look at that and I said, "Wow, I." I I did begin to see her as my mother, and I, and I, and there was this physical abuse and, and all kinds of other problems, you know, that that became really complicated as time went on. But of course, you know, no blame there. You know, we we sort of attract these things into our lives, and I think it's for a good reason, because as a result of seeing all of that, I began a very strict healing process, a transformational process, and uh, one of the very first things that happened. A friend of mine who's also a therapist invited me to spend a week with him in New Mexico. New Mexico is a state in the United States, for those of you who are not from here. Um, it's, a, it's, it's a semi-desert place. It's a, and there's a lot of uh, Native American influence there and a lot of Hispanic influence and also, you know, American influence. But it's a very, very interesting place in the United States. And this man, this friend of mine, with his wife, they're both therapists, and they live out there, in the, you know, in, in the edge, on the edge of the desert. And I spent a week with them walking around the desert, both during the day and at night, and driving around and walking around. And I had some fantastic experiences there. And when I came back from that trip, I had a different perspective. I began to, to really look at my life differently. And I said, it's time to get to work and heal, you know, heal trauma. We have trauma accumulated in our unconscious minds and we have to own that you know it's it's we we can't really blame anybody because nobody forced us into anything you know we 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 have to take ownership of that trauma and say this is my trauma and i'm going to heal it and i think that when a when a person makes that sort of decision i think the healing process is probably halfway done already because you know denial is over you know and um when denial is over, okay, we uncover everything. Okay, I'm actually broken. I don't know what to do with my life, you know. And then we begin, we go to work. So we begin with the basics. You know, the first thing that I did was I began to uh, keep my place, my apartment, because I moved out of the house, moved into an apartment, you know. And it was disorganized and messy, to be honest with you, in the beginning. And I justified that because I was broken. I was suffering. I was crying all the time. So I didn't pick up anything. 
So the first thing I did is we're going to keep this place completely clean, completely organized. And I got into the habit doing the laundry every other day, keeping everything very organized. And that began to teach my brain that I do have the ability to live in an organized environment, as I did before, but but I had broken and lost all of that ability. So by beginning to organize the external environment, keeping everything clean, the kitchen clean, you know, I also began to organize the internal environment. So I would keep the drawers and the closets um, organized and um, and that began to help. And then, um, you know, the next step for me was to do a little bit of exercise, physical exercise, because yeah. because it's important to move that blood. Because when a person suffers and cries and, 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 and is sad and depressed, you know, there's a chemical signature to that emotional state that actually accumulates in the body. In other words, every emotional state is produced by brain chemicals, neurotransmitters that actually flood your bloodstream and they sort of accumulate and it becomes more and more difficult to get out of those states if we don't move the blood around more intensely, if we don't sweat, you know, so I began to exercise and um, your posture changes when you exercise, you begin to breathe better, you begin to sleep better, you know, so that began to help. And then lots of therapy and therapy i'm a therapist and therapy i believe in therapy a whole lot i suggest everybody does therapy i think it's beautiful because it's really the only environment where you can really talk to someone else about your deepest issues in a in an environment that is entirely free of judgment completely free of judgment but also it's a unique opportunity to focus on you in front of another human being without really being selfish because that's what you're there for, to talk about you yeah. to another human being. So you're not just thinking in a circular way because you have a trained professional who's challenging you to go deeper into yourself, but you're not being selfish either because you're not burdening your friends or anything. You know, you're you're in front of a professional, it's a, it's a service, and this person is there focused on you and you're focused on the process, you know, of getting to know who you are. So I, I totally believe in this process. And I'm still in therapy. I'm still fixing a bunch of a bunch of uh, different parts of myself that need to improve, of course. But thank God, you know, I feel um, I feel alive again. And it took a while to feel alive again. But but here we are, and yeah. here we're talking. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna, you know, and this and it, and your story is actually really good, actually, because and it's really really um, powerful. Um, I was gonna, I was gonna ask, I was gonna ask you if you the times when you. And it's interesting, really interesting, because some of these things that come up, you know, in, the, in these episodes, and it, it just really, it's it's really thought provoking. So when you, the part where you spoke about um, your, you, you know, your, your your partner hitting you, what what was that like? I must say, what was that like? What was the first time? What did, what was that like? The first time when you noticed that she started doing this. Yeah, I remember that night very, very well, as you can all imagine, you know, because once you get over denial, then you discover that there are many images that are basically seared into your mind, you know, and I and I remember every step of that night and um, there was, um, so let me see how I can tackle this. So, um, 
something happened in yeah. the household and uh, she got upset of course and I, I got concerned because she had been talking to somebody for two weeks about something and we at that time in our marriage we had uh, um, an open phone policy meaning that none of her phones had locks in them you know so she looked you know she didn't really look at my phone but she had the access to my phone and I had access to hers so that night when she got upset at me very upset you know i thought that there was no reason for such upset for such anger uh, she went to sleep in a different room so then i picked up her phone like i said i was authorized to do so at that time and i looked at it and she had deleted a two-week chat history with this particular person and i and i didn't like that she deleted the history because there's no precedent for that in our marriage we didn't really hide anything from anyone you know so when I called her on it, I said, well, you deleted this history, so there must be something illicit. And that's the word that I used. There must be something illicit about this conversation for you to delete it and then come to sleep in a different room, you know? So when I said that, she attacked me. She was laying down in a little small bed in a, in a child's bedroom, you know? So she got up and started hitting me and I ran away. She pushed me down the stairs. So it was a very violent scene. And I have two adult daughters from a previous marriage. Yeah. They were there. They witnessed. They tried to restrain her. They couldn't restrain her. So I got cuts all over. She, you know, so it was a very violent scene, you know. And so I called her parents and I asked for help. I, I left the house, you know, I physically walked out of the house and from the street I called the parents, asked for help. And they came over and um, I thought I was going to, what I thought would happen at that time was that they would say, okay, everything's okay, we're here now, we're gonna help you because they're the parents, right? So let's sit down and talk about what happened. I thought that's what would happen, but instead they sort of blamed me for it and took her with our baby to their home like I had done something wrong. And for years after that, the story in the family was that it was my fault because according to them I instigated the beating and I instigated it by virtue of checking her phone and discovering that she had deleted a conversation with another man and calling it illicit you know the actual act of deleting it so that put me in a state of fright because that put me right there in my you know I'm I'm all, I'm, I'm two years old three years old all over again and I was like okay I just took on a beating and it's my fault. It's my fault yeah. that she gave me a beating because that's what she said. Well, you instigated it, you know? So of course, I heard, what I heard in my mind was, it's my fault. And um, another part of me at that time, you know, to answer your question, the logical, the adult part of me says, wait a second, if I, I don't, I don't do this, but if I had beaten up a woman and we end up in court and I tell the judge, your honor, I beat her up because she instigated it. There's no single soul on this earth that would agree with me that it's okay to beat her up, even if she instigated it. And yet, emotionally, and this is something that we call in therapy, cognitive dissonance. It's a very important concept yes, to understand. Yes. The, the rational adult in me said, this is absolutely ludicrous, you know, how can I have instigated a beating? But the child part of me said, yeah, it's my fault, I better hide. It's all my fault. Mm -hmm. And so she left the house, didn't come back for three or four days, and I was literally afraid of what was going to happen next. I stayed in bed for long periods of time, I didn't know what to do. 
I didn't want to talk to anybody like a little child. Mm. After three or four days, I went to the parents' house to look for her. And um, something amazing happened. You see, by then I had spent like three or four days alone, crying, like, you know, it's all my fault, you know. So when I got there, again, the cognitive dissonance, the adult in me thought that she was going to apologize for the beating. Instead, when I got there, she told me that I, I owed her an apology. And not only that, I also had to apologize to her parents for disturbing them. Mm. And again, the child in me felt familiar with that. You know, when I was a kid, I also received beatings and, and punishment, and I had to apologize for it, as crazy as they may sound. Yeah. That's the condition. And I don't know how this woman picked up on this, but she did. And that's exactly what she told me, well, we have to apologize. So I apologized to her, and I apologized to her parents. And she came home and continued the marriage. But that became a pattern. You know, I, I, I realize now looking back, you know, imagine you take on a beating and you apologize. Of course, you're basically telling the person, please beat me up, you know. So whenever there was a problem, there would be, a, there would be some sort of, a, there would be physical violence and eventually the police would show up, you know, you know, and, um, and it was always somehow my fault. I never got into trouble or anything because I never hit her back. I never held her hands. I never scratched her. So the police would come, see that there was no evidence of any violence from part and leave. But I never told the police that she hit me. Right. And uh, because, so, so because call, again... So who would call uh, the police then? Who would call the police? Well, I, I did once. One time I called the police. I took on an enormous beating and I called the police and for the life of me, the day, and I remember this very well, and uh, it was September 30th, 19th, uh, 2017, I remember this day like yesterday, and um, I called the police that day because, um, but, but, I, but I dialed 911, which is the emergency services here in the United States, yeah, yeah. and in my mind, again, you see the cognitive dissonance, in my mind, what I was looking for was medical help, I thought she had gone insane. She gave me a heck of a beating, cut me all over, broke my glasses. I mean, it was a heck of a beating. So I thought she had gone insane and she was about to break up the house inside. You know? So I needed medical help. I needed like psychiatric um, help, essentially, somebody to sedate her. You know, that's what I thought in my mind would happen. But instead, the, the police showed up and treated it as a, as a criminal sort of thing. You know, so they investigated the whole thing and there was absolutely no evidence that I had done anything because there wasn't. They photograph everything, they film everything, record everybody. There's a whole lot of, you know, they were there for hours taking pictures and interviewing us and so forth, you know. And of course, I had cuts and bruises all over my body. And they would ask me, okay, what happened? Tell us what happened. And I would tell them, no, I slipped, I fell. I bumped my head into the toilet when I fell. That type of lie, you know. Mm -hmm. It was interesting because the police officers told me, we know she's lying, they told me. But you're not telling us what really happened. You know, in a sense, I was lying as well, obviously, you know, because I knew, of course, you now if I tell her, look, she gave me a beating and I'm cut all over. She she's not even, mar you know, there's no, of course, she would have been arrested for domestic violence. And uh, before the police showed up, she told me, well, a real man would cover for his wife. And that became sort of a motto, you know, a real man covers for his wife. So I took on a beating and she says, well, a real man wouldn't say anything. So you can imagine how many wounds 
you know, not feeling like a real man, perhaps, if I say the truth, you know, so we begin to cover up some of these things. So, of course, it began to get worse and worse and worse, you know, and eventually I left. And by the time I left the house and, and filed for divorce, I knew that I was choosing between death and death. By then, I was severely trauma bonded. I was in narcissistic abuse all the way. I was, uh, I knew that if I stayed, I would have died. I knew that. But I knew that if I left her, I would have died as well. That's how I felt. Yeah. Died of pain because I felt addicted to her. You know, which of course at the time, if you had asked me, I thought it was pure love. But of course, now I know it was addiction. You know, love is not violent like that, you know. So I thought that without her, I couldn't live. And with her, I cannot live. So I'm choosing between death and death. And, and it was horrible. Yeah. So about a month after I left the house, I had what we call a near-death experience. I couldn't sleep for a month. And um, and um, I had a near-death experience. It was a really beautiful experience, you know, because I found myself... Um, I, I, I knelt down one day, I was living at the office at the time, I slept at the office for 40 days because I didn't know if I was going to go back home, if we had a marriage, if we didn't, you know. So I slept at the office on the floor for 40 days and 40 nights and I, um, there was one night that I got on my knees and I started praying and I realized of course that I have made many, many mistakes in my life and of course, you know, in a marriage, whenever something becomes so ugly as what I lived, we cannot really say that it's all anybody's fault. You know, we both contributed to the problem, obviously, and I had my share of problems. I was very critical, I was uh, annoying to her. I had a number of problems, of course. And, um, and I recognized those problems and I felt really bad about them. You know, I, I, I didn't like what I had done, some of the mistakes that I had made in the marriage. And also throughout my life, not just in that marriage. And so I was determined not to get up from, from the praying position until I felt healed or, or somehow I wanted to heal the pain that I felt inside. And I was there for a long time and eventually I find myself in this space where, so I think I, I sort of had a little moment of clinical death there because um, I find myself out of the body in this other space where there's really nothing around. There was a really, interesting sensation because from my perspective there's absolutely nothing around like there's no floor no ceiling no walls you know no images of any type no light of any type and yet i don't feel alone i'm there and i don't know where i am there's nothing that i can identify and yet i feel some sort of presence which i don't know what it is i'm not gonna say that i saw god or anything like this but what i do know is that i didn't feel that i was alone although i could not recognize anyone or anything of any type and um the experience was so beautiful because um there seemed to me at the time to be an interaction between my feelings and what i was perceiving perception and feelings seemed to be together for instance what i mean is I remember that at one time I noticed that darkness was all around me. And just as I noticed that darkness was all around me, I noticed that to my right, a point of light sort of yeah. showed up. Yeah. You know, and then, uh, and I go, wow, you know, it's like this interaction here going on. And then I have four daughters, as I mentioned, from two different marriages. 
and I thought of going into the light. And this is a proverbial sort of a metaphorical sort of description of that, you know. Yeah. And as I thought of the light, I thought of my daughters. And as I look back, I see my four daughters, but they're not sad, they're not upset, they're not encouraging me or discouraging me from going or staying. They're just there, witnessing the whole story without any emotion, you know. And then I remember asking what I would call God, I guess, if I could please come back and if I could please make a contribution. I didn't want to leave, I didn't want to die without making a better contribution to the world, you know. Um, by then I had already been a therapist for many years, but I didn't feel that I had made a contribution yet. And I wanted to come back and bring something back and do something more significant for someone else, you know. And uh, I don't know exactly how long I was there. I don't have any other recollections. All I know is that the next morning I opened my eyes and I'm in a different room. Evidently, I came back. Now, the months that followed that experience, this happened on December 23rd, 2018. The several months that followed that experience, I was in a daze. And oftentimes I would pinch myself. I wasn't sure if I had died or not. I was in a daze. I wasn't sure what was happening. It was a very, very weird time. And what I learned to understand is that my mind was being sort of set, like a computer that is, uh, the freezes and you reboot it, you turn it off and you turn it back on again. Yeah. The way it felt to me, like my mind had been turned off and I was rebooting my mind and I was basically learning to live all over again, like a little kid, you know? So that's when I told you I had to learn how to clean the place and learn how to eat and learn yeah, how to, yeah. I couldn't read. You know, I, I couldn't read. I mean, I, I, it's not like I forgot how to read. It's just that I would look at a book and I couldn't, I would try to read, but I couldn't really understand anything, like nothing, you know, so I couldn't really read. I couldn't really write. I couldn't really do anything. But gradually, as I began to sleep and relax, all of those functions returned and uh, to a certain extent sharper than before. But, but it was an interesting period of my life, you know, readjusting to, to life, you know, so what I feel now is a tremendous sense of, um, of um, uh, like what I call, in my language, and I call this like a divine providence. I feel that there's this intelligence in the cosmic, in, in, in this divine intelligence, if, if you will, that sort of looks after us and not only protects us from ourselves, but also provides us with experiences that we need. have a support network and how were your daughters what things when all those things were happening to you or you know the the, the 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 violence the abuse what was actually what what were your support networks i teach a mystical philosophy at a small private school and i have a few friends there other teachers and other you know i'm a volunteer teacher and um and in a sense, in a weird sense, the students as well, these are all adults, you know, it's a, it's a school for, for adults. And um, in a sense, you know, that environment was a support system at that time as well, because I would go to the class and these are mystical sort of ideas and uh, 
during the period that I was doing the class, I would relax and I was able to focus on this, the teachings and so forth. And so that whole process served as a support system and I have some friends there as well. And um, during the marriage, you asked you know, about during the time when the violence was taking place. You know, during the marriage, I worked a whole lot of hours and, and I got a lot of satisfaction out of work. So in a sense, work functioned at the time as a support system as well. Of course, now I see many, many, many mistakes that I made at that time, you know, not taking care of myself, not growing more, not um, not being a better husband in many ways, you know, not that any of this justifies the violence. I'm just saying that, you know, I could have done way better back then on many, many, on many, many different um, issues. I could have been a better husband, a better man, a better father, on many different um, areas, you know. So I wouldn't do, if, you know, I, I wouldn't repeat what I did back then. But back then, I, I, I basically stayed out of the house as long as possible, and I worked as much as possible. And I came home to sleep, essentially. And, you know, in therapy later, I remembered, of course, that that's exactly what I did as a child, you know, trying to be out of the house as much as possible and uh, come home as late as possible so that I don't have to face any problems. I don't say that. So those are patterns that we learn early on in life, I think. I was going to say that to you, is that that, um, I was thinking that when you were talking about staying out of the house, that you may have stayed out of the house. One, obviously because of work, but obviously to try and keep yourself... um, your, your mental health um, intact and also not to be able to go home to what what you might face um, in terms of uh, maybe physical and and abuse and what I was saying to you and what I was going to say before we, we kind of had the interlude is what what gave you that strength in a sense to finally say I've had enough what 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 was that what what, what was it did somebody speak to you what, or did it come from inside? Yeah, it's a really, really interesting question. Thank you. I This happened on, on November 22nd, 2018, which here in the United States was a holiday that we call Thanksgiving. It's a very, very important holiday for me personally. It's my favorite holiday. I, I really enjoy that day of the year. And my then wife knew about that. And every year that we were married, except for the first one, she would either get sick on Thanksgiving, just that day alone, or she would get really upset and not talk to me. Every Thanksgiving, there was a problem. Mm. And um, that year, the same thing happened. You know, uh, we were talking in the morning when I woke up, we were talking, having coffee. Suddenly, she gets really upset to this date. I don't know why or what happened or what I did wrong, but she decided not to talk to me for the rest of the day. We went to eat at my sister's house, but she would not talk to me, no matter what, she would not talk to me. At night, I went for a walk, I I wanted to cool off a little bit, I waited, I went to talk to her in the other bedroom, all over again. If you remember, the first meeting ever was because she got upset and went to sleep in a different room. So I came back into this other room of the house to see if I could talk to her, she refused to talk to me. And I don't know what happened, Andy, I, I, um, I didn't intend to leave her at that time. I left to go to sleep at the office intending to come back in the morning but i think that was another mistake that i made you know i i 
I should probably not have left. I, I, I should have stayed and tried a little harder to talk to her. I, I beat myself up a lot for that decision. But she wouldn't talk to me. The silent treatment was killing me because it was too much. Every year, Thanksgiving was a silent treatment. Was the, you know. So I said, you know what? I'm going to sleep at the office. We'll talk in the morning. She refused to talk to me. And um, that didn't work out too well because by the time I came back in the morning, she didn't want to have anything to do with me again. And actually, we never spoke again, despite having, you know, three children, because she had a child from a previous marriage who called me father. You know, I, when I met her, he was one year old and yeah. I basically raised him. So I never saw the boy again and I never saw her again. Right. So initially, not having a breakup, for instance, like a breakup talk, like, look, I don't want to be with you anymore. You know, initially that really devastated me because I kind of needed to hear that, to have the conversation with her, which she refused, of course. You know. Then later, of course, I found out that, you know, she had already been with somebody else and she was already living with the person. And, uh, you know, there was somebody else in the picture while we we're married and all of this stuff, you know. And one time before I left the house, she told me something that I have to concede, you know, that she was right. She told me, well, I've been living alone for the past several years and I, and she's right I was always at work and uh, you know so apparently there was somebody else in the picture and eventually she decided to not talk to me anymore and be with someone else and of course that too was a huge um, problem for me emotionally in the beginning you know because I felt that because of my mistakes you know I the family was broken and so forth you know. but then you know in therapy and so forth you know, people realize that you know, there's a difference between a separation and a breakup. If she was not happy with me, she could have separated from me and then built another relationship with somebody else. But the cheating behavior, just like the violence, you know, is really not justified by feeling lonely in the marriage. Because yeah. we could have talked about this, we could have made changes, we could have we could have separated peacefully and she could have built a life with someone else, you know. So the cheating just like the violence, um, people try to justify that by saying, well, I was alone, therefore I cheated. Well, the cheating is cheating. It's kind of a lie. It's like the break of a promise. You know, we had a promise to be exclusive with one another and she didn't fulfill the promise, which is fine. You know, I, I'm not, I, I, don't, I don't want your listeners to think that there's any judgment anymore or any uh, blame there, you know. I'm just telling you the story because you're asking. Yeah, yeah. But... But what I'm saying is that in the mind of the person who grew up feeling blamed for the abuse, you know, of course, my natural tendency at the time was to blame myself for everything. So it's my fault that she cheated, it's my fault that I was beaten up, it's my fault, you know, everything's my fault. And it took a while to, uh, to unravel all of that, you know, and as I began to unravel it, I began to say, okay, I made a bunch of mistakes. But some mistakes I didn't make. Some mistakes belong to someone else, not to me. And each person has to be responsible for their contribution to the yeah. problem, you know. So, yeah. so I began to heal as I began to separate what belongs to me from what does not belong to me. So um, during uh, during that time and now, um, how have you how have your daughters, you know, how have your kids been since then? I mean, what were they like during that that that? that situation and the, the, the doors from your previous relationship how what was that like for them and um seeing 
um, their father being it being hit or you know maybe getting upset what was that like for them um, in terms of seeing that yeah that was very 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 difficult you know um, because my older daughters also witnessed another divorce which was between their mother and I and so they came into this second marriage you know kind of predisposed to the notion that somehow I would mess up again you know they thought I messed up in the first marriage incidentally my first wife and I are great friends today and we talk all the time and we were friends right through the divorce in other words we, we just didn't work out and we got separated but there's no violence there's no you know animosity we were just didn't want to be married anymore and separated but my daughters have a different perspective in the sense that of course their lives was altered by our divorce and so they sort of uh, held on to some judgments against me many of which were true in other words i did make mistakes and some of which i thought were not necessarily true but that's okay that's their interpretation of the events so what happened here was that in my second marriage, we had two babies, as I told you, and they were both born at home. I delivered them both at home with the assistance uh, of a midwife. Of course, I had been to medical school and I was into that stuff and uh, we had the babies at home. And my daughters were present at the birth, my older daughters. And so they're very attached to their younger sisters, very attached. Yeah. So when the second divorce came up, they felt threatened that they perhaps wouldn't get to see their sisters anymore and that caused them to sort of blame me for the whole thing well because of you i may not get to see my sisters anymore and they had a hard time with this divorce and so did i obviously but they had a really hard time as well so there was a period there in the beginning that they were not really talking to me that much they were never really explicitly upset with me but one of the things that does happen in these types of situations is that, you know, some people um, take pride in turning your family members and your friends against you. Some people do this. You know, they say certain things to other people, whatever. And my ex-wife did uh, a fair share of that and, uh, you know, sort of explaining to my daughters how bad of a person I was, which I think is an unfair thing to do. But a lot of that went on during the marriage and so my daughters kind of took on her side and um, thought that perhaps it was all my fault you know and i had been a bad husband and so forth you know and um, they even told me the very same thing that i had heard from the ex-wife which is that yes they saw the beatings but i had instigated her you know so this phrase is a phrase that came from the ex-wife, but they were repeating this. In other words, they were sort of hypnotized into the same mentality. You know? So we had a hard time, to be honest with you, and I have a lot of uh, mending work to do still with my older daughters, and also with my baby daughters, because frankly, in the beginning, you know, I was in so much pain that I'm not sure that initially I, I'm not sure that I was a very good father in the beginning me I was in too much pain and now we're doing much much better with the babies you know and my daughters are beginning to come around but there's a lot of work to be done still there's a lot of damage there to be healed you know yeah. and uh, with the good news about all that is that I'm feeling more alive and more um, capable 
of addressing these issues. In yeah. the beginning, I couldn't address anything because I felt dead myself. You know, so as I begin to come back to life, I'm more and more capable of addressing these things, and uh, and therefore make a difference. Yeah, yeah, you find that you definitely find that as you start to become more alive, your relationship with your daughters will start to improve because what they'll what they'll see is the the real you, the real you, the. That's not to say that wasn't the real you, but the the person coming out, the put the little boy, who's who, who's not a little boy anymore, but turned into a man, and is kind of growing, and should have you know maybe for all intents and purposes should have seen that growth a long time ago, but it's now that growth is starting to happen now, and as you, like I say, as you as you as you improve your your, your mental health and and your thoughts, and you become more happier. They'll start to see that, and you'll you'll start to get more closer to them. Yeah, yeah, that's how I see it. Yes, I agree with you. Yeah. So, um, talk, talk, um, yeah, tell the listeners about. You know, we spoke about your life and 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 things like that. Tell the listeners about the books that you've written and your the success in in terms of your career. What what took you into that? Career. What what was it that took you in the career? Not to be a footballer, or what what was it that took you into that career? Well, I've loved engineering since I was a kid. I remember being a very young boy and taking toys apart, and and I wanted to be an engineer since I was a little little boy. Then I remember really clearly. So of course I went to engineering school. Then I got then I went to work. I graduated, went to work. I came back to graduate school because a, a professor of mine offered me a position working at a lab in the biomedical engineering department. And I loved that, you know, the application of engineering principles to medicine. And they put me on this project working at a hospital developing what's called an stereotactic locator, which is a tool for doctors to apply radiation to brain tumor patients. And they developed that tool, I manufactured it, and I went into a few surgeries, you know, to test out the tool with the surgeon, you know, and it was a very, it was a fascinating time of discovery and learning for me. And I took a liking and a love really for biomedical engineering. So I stayed through my doctorate and I worked on cardiovascular mechanics and artificial heart valves. And as I was doing the research in the area of cardiovascular health, I discovered that much of what happens in terms of heart disease has to do with emotions. In other words, the body seems to somatize our emotions. And um, if a person feels like they have a broken heart, like from an emotional point of view, over time, it does tend to increase the probability of heart disease. So I began to read more and more papers on the connection between mind and body by that time, I had already graduated in parallel to all of this. I had already graduated with a degree in philosophy, and I loved the you know the whole study of metaphysics and philosophy and all of that stuff. And um, I began to put two and two together, and I also had a mystical background. I, I studied mysticism and hypnosis as a hobby, only as a hobby for me, for my own personal development. But one day, I was already, by then I was already teaching engineering. I had a job teaching uh, uh, undergraduate engineering courses at university. I had already achieved what I wanted, which was to be a professor. 
And um, someone offered me uh, the idea of opening up an office and become a hypnotist. And I had been working with a few people as a hobby only, but somehow that idea made sense to me at the time. So I left university, we opened up this office, and after we opened it up six months later, the man, Lewis, who invited me to open it up with me, said that he didn't want to be a hypnotist if I would buy his share of the office. So I did, and um, been doing it ever since. It's been 23 years since then. So the, the books sort of evolved naturally as a result of the work that we do, because there's this desire to share some of these ideas with people. I have taught over 3,000 uh, therapy students how to do hypnotherapy. They've uh, been certified, about 3,000 students we have certified. And uh, one of the books that I wrote is called The Philosophy of Therapy. Because I have a background in philosophy and a background in therapy, I wrote this book, which is a critical examination of the reasons and beliefs that we use in the development of therapeutic techniques. And it's a fascinating little book. Everybody who's read it has told me that they thoroughly enjoy it because I discuss philosophy and therapy as they relate to one another. So that book's written in English and Spanish. I, I wrote both versions. I didn't really have somebody translate it because I didn't think that would look good. And so those are two of them. And then I wrote Awesome Again, which as I said, is a, is a method that we can use to to basically recover from, from from devastation, as I say sometimes. Mm. And that book is really awesome. It's about 47,000 words. It's, it's a pretty thorough book, and I get into some, some pretty deep subjects about um, neuroplasticity, um, epigenetics, the therapeutics of change. You know, I get into the philosophy of how uh, our lives can change. But, you know, I address things like the nervous system, you know, the importance of changing habits in order to change your nervous system and, and what that has to do with your life and so forth, you know. And then I get into the actual seven steps. So there's a chapter there on how to develop routines and what the value of routines is. There's a whole chapter on how to find your purpose in life. There's an exercise that I've been using at the office for many, many years. Um, it takes nine days to do it. It's like self-assessment of who you are. Yeah. And you can come up with your own mission statement. So it's a, so it's an interesting book. You know, all of the reviews on Amazon have been five star, and um, and he has made it to number one in sales uh, in a couple of categories for a while, which is which is nice. You know, I, I my intent is to share. So then I wrote another book after that is going to be coming out in April now, which is called Awesome Again, the workbook which includes concepts from this book, but it's written in a workbook format for you to fill in your own ideas and work with it in the seminars that we're running. And then I wrote another book, uh, took me 33 days to write this, it was a novel. I wrote it in terms of a novel. Uh, it's called Finding TH, and um, it's the story. It's an autobiographical novel of a man who is on the mystical path and experiences a major breakdown in his life and then he goes out into the world seeking his own healing and uh, seeking his own self-development in a sense and of course it's autobiographical and um, i essentially share the details of this path that i have taken 
and the Ashudans will be coming out in um, in April. It's already written. It's being edited right now. That's a much larger book. It's about a hundred thousand words, and it's written as a novel. And I and I decided to put it in terms of a novel only because I wanted to protect not only the identities of a few people that show up in the novel, but also the identity of certain processes that I engaged in. So I scramble a little bit the cities in which certain things took place, you know, only for 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 identification purposes, yeah. and I protect the identity of certain processes. But essentially, the story is entirely true. And um, I really love the book. I'm in love with that story. So um, I can't wait for it to come out. And uh, we, I just recently received the cover from the designer, and it, I think it's absolutely beautiful. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's 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 really interesting that you know you you're you've gone through all these processes. You've you've in a lot of ways, like you said, you've you've recognised where because quite often. You, we, we, the traumas as adults or things that we go through as adults, we don't recognize them, and we, it's not until we look back or someone sees something in us is that we realize that a lot of traumas start from childhood. Um, yeah, you know, yeah, and but we just kind of lock them away and we kind of oh, we'll just get on and, and move on with our lives or whatever. Um, whether it's you know, physical abuse, mental abuse, whether it's whether we've you know fallen down somewhere it's a, it's almost like when you it's, i think I'm, i don't want to sound um i don't know how, how to put this but i was like i like i'm kind of liking it to in a sense when you when you look at the, the story of batman say for instance it's almost saying you that it's almost telling you that that way where he lost his parents and his fear of something it's kind of stuck with him for a long time and then he kind of that thing comes out of him much later in his life so it happened when he was a child but then he, it still sticks with him but then he takes that fear and turns it into something good um, in terms of helping and helping tackle the, the, the bad guys or whatever so in a sense what I'm saying is that for a lot of people the, the trauma starts in can start in childhood and we kind of lock it away and block it out with by doing things like say taking part in sports um going through life just going through life as we normally would do as a, as a child growing up into a teenager and then these things happen to us and then it's not until much later that we find out oh this i wonder why this is happening to me why am i thinking like this oh it's because this happened to me as a child um and it's and it's and it's really you know it's it's good that you're writing these books, um, and and sort of healing others, healing others through your books and through your work. Um, what would you say to somebody out there that's been through trauma, um, and been through, and who is going through trauma now actually, and been through trauma and is going through trauma now? What would you say to those to that person? Man, without a doubt, my first suggestion would be go talk to somebody. Gotta talk about it because what keeps the trauma cycle going, the abuse, trauma, what keeps that stuff going is silence. You see, there's a strong sense of shame whenever there is any kind of problem like that. And the shame keeps us quiet. 
that that's what happened to me but not only to me it happens to everybody like shame keeps you quiet about it and people don't want to talk about this because they feel ashamed and so my suggestion is go talk to somebody even if you feel the shame even if you don't think you can talk about it begin the process of talking and if you choose a good a qualified person like a professional like a therapist a counselor a priest a rabbi somebody who's somebody who's trained in talking to people you know even if you don't think you can talk about what's going on this person will help you get it out you know like talk about these things and um, and you're going to discover that you're not meant to live in any sort of pain or bondage or any you know that's not the way life is meant to be depending on the type of abuse we're talking about sometimes it can feel like this is as good as you're ever going to get you know people feel addicted to the sort of um, to the sort of abuse really and i'm here to tell you that that's just not true you know there's a there's a, a brain chemicals there 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 are neurotransmitters that would cause us to feel addicted to this emotional roller coaster but you need to know if you're listening to us right now that you deserve an awesome life and let me tell you something i don't think that necessarily an awesome life implies let's say in the case of a marriage i don't think that you have to necessarily break up the marriage i know that when i say this to people they freak out because most people out there say you have to leave the abuser immediately whatever no i don't think so i think that the marriage can in some cases can be restored and be a great marriage but um but you got to start the process of seeking help and talk about these things it's very very important also remember that there are no true victims anywhere and and, I, and again this is another controversial idea you know for instance in my case i'm using the word abuse here and it would imply that they feel like a victim but they don't i know i made many mistakes and um and i don't blame her either you know i think that she was only uh, doing what she thought she had to do to survive in some ways you know and the same applies for my mother let's say my childhood you know so people do what they can i don't think anybody really means to hurt you it's just the way life is so what we have to do as an adult is own that and say okay now this is up to me to heal so we're going to we're going to start talking to somebody that's definitely the first thing i got to do and i'm telling you all you have to do in life is look and somebody will be there to talk to you for some of you is going to be a religious person if you're religious for some of you is going to be a professional for some of you it might be an older family member who cares for you in others there's always somebody always always if you just look around and ask for help you know uh, there will be somebody there to talk to you. and so if you're not sure if the situation you're living is right wrong good or bad if you're not sure this is abusive or not talk to somebody say look i'm feeling this can you give me some perspective here what's your ideas about this you know so that's definitely my first uh, suggestion to anybody out there who might be going through this is make sure that you talk to somebody good qualified and uh, and get to know yourself a little bit better and don't be so um focused on the notion that you have to break up your relationships because i repeat i don't think this necessarily true i think that in some cases you could end up having a great relationship especially if both of you seek help you know like in the case of a marriage yeah yeah and and, and thank you know i like to thank you for coming on and and speaking about and opening up about you know your past because i know it can't be hard, it can't be easy 
Um, I know there's a lot of stigma. I don't know what it's like in the USA, but there's a lot of stigma in, in particularly in the UK and around the world and some parts of the world where um, uh, men who are, who, who, you know, quite often it's always, in the past it's always been seen as the men that's been the, the in a sense, the abuser or part, you know, domestic violence. But now we're seeing that women, um, we're noticing now that more and more women are, um, uh, are doing it's, it's the shoes on the other foot, and they're kind of they're the one that's committing the the the, the violence. So it's you know it's all powerful. It's all powerful for coming on because as for like I say, um, it's harder for a man to speak about being the victim in a sense. When I say victim, and I, I know what you're saying, but in terms of being hit, you become the victim, and so it's it's a lot it's a lot harder for men to kind of speak up about it. Enough. I've noticed that more and more uh, men are trying to find a way to find people to can talk to, to 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 speak about it. And what I would say about that is, you know, listening to your stories, that definitely um, get help and get people to um, to to listen and 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 you know and kind of help yourself to help others. So, yeah. So, yeah. So, so thank you for coming yeah. up. Yeah, support, and I and I totally appreciate the work you're doing, for instance, because uh, you know you're bringing that awareness to so many people, and uh, you do it in such a loving way, in such a good way, you know, with all the, the the interviews that you do, and the conversations, and the advice that you share, you know, and I think that's awesome what you're doing, and I really thank you for your work because uh, I think we need a lot more of these types of conversations. So yeah, I totally agree with you. You know, if you're if you are in, if you're listening to us right now and you are in this situation, don't just listen to the episode, but talk to somebody uh, about what's going on with you in particular, so that you can ventilate your feelings, so you can talk these things out and get some perspective. You know, so yeah, yeah. I think that's really important. So Flavio, what does um, life look like to you now? What does you know, you, you, you're, you're, you're on this crest of a wave, you're feeling better and happier. What does life look for you look, look, look for you now and, and in the future? Well, thank you for asking that question. You know, I'm very, um, I feel very fortunate. I feel very blessed, to be honest with you. You know, like you said, at the crest of the wave, I feel awesome. We are, um, we're running, we're beginning to run some retreats, you know, some four or five day retreats where we can help people who have been in very difficult situations. And so, you know, I'm going to be bringing my therapeutic skills along with a group of other therapists, and we're going to be doing some really intense retreats where in, in about four or five days, people can actually overcome a whole lot of problems in a shorter period of time. Instead of going for therapy for months, you know, perhaps we can do this in a few days with full immersion in the process. So that's the project that we're really excited about. Like I said, Finding TH, this book is coming out about a month i'm really happy about that because it's an awesome book it's an awesome story and um this might be surprising but i'm 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 very i'm very excited about you know rebuilding my life with another woman i think that i i I believe in god and i believe that god provides i believe that um you know all of the experiences i went through were good in the sense that he brought me to the point of healing a lot of things and I believe that 
today I can be a much better man, a much better husband to a woman. And I think that there has to be a woman out there that could be, that could actually benefit, if you will, from all of these lessons, all of this uh, healing. You know, I think that we could actually form a very good uh, partnership and live a wonderful life. And um, my children, of course, know. Like I said, I have four daughters, and they, I absolutely love them. And I want to provide them with a life that is easier, I guess. I want to provide them with opportunities for growth, for self-exploration, for for understanding. You know, and I think for that we need to stabilize. You know, a few other things in my personal life, and I would love to give them a traditional home. You know, in which there's a man and a woman. You know, I, I think that that model is healthy. I like that model. I know that there are other models out there, other ways of living life. I understand and respect that. But for me, the the model of a man and a woman together with the children, you know, that model is beautiful. I love that model. And I would like to, and I want to provide my daughters with that so they can grow up seeing how a man and a woman can interact in a healthy way, which, which I do believe I'm capable of right now. And so, you know, just having the opportunity to pass on to the next generation an idea of what, of how awesome life could be, I think is a remarkable opportunity. You know, just being around on this earth and passing on some things that we have learned, you know, to the next generation, I think that's absolutely gorgeous. You know, that's a great opportunity. Yeah. And, I, you know, I'd love to, I'd love to get hold of your books and, and, and read your books and, um, I've got a few books myself, and I'd like to get hold of your books and read your books. And yeah, they're they're on Amazon. They're on Amazon, and uh, they're coming out. Uh, one of them is already on Audible, and the other one is coming out. They're already recorded and ready to go, and um, they should be on Audible. All of them should be this coming week or something, you know, because they have a review process. Yeah, yeah. But they're already uploaded and ready to go. So in a few more days, they're going to be out. One of them is already out in Audible, and the three of them are in print and ebook but i'll be more than happy to send you a copy of the book and um, any one of your listeners who need anything whatsoever feel free to call me anytime and i'll be more than happy to talk to anybody who would like to talk and uh, and if i if you need a copy of the book i'll be happy to send it absolutely you know yeah. i understand what it's like to feel bad and to feel broken and to feel like perhaps you don't have any resources i understand what that may feel like and so if you're in a tight spot and if you don't if you want the book and you don't think you can afford perhaps the fee for the book whatever the case is let me know and i'll be more than happy to send it to you it's not a you know i i, I enjoy sharing it but more importantly sometimes it's not even the book itself is the is the act of sharing sometimes you know it helps a person understand that, that they're not alone and so if any one of you are, are in that situation by all means feel free to contact me and uh and we'll work something out where you can have with it, you know, I'll be more than happy to share. Yeah. And where can you be found? Where can you be found? Social well, FlavioLife.com, www.flaviolife.com is my website. And um, if you just put my name, Flavio Ballerini, in Google, a number of pages will show up. And um, we have a YouTube channel. I have a podcast. It's called Dr. Flavio Speaks. Okay. Um, you can find the podcast. You can find the YouTube channel. But my name is Flavio Ballerini, and that name comes up in Google all over the place. So, by all means, uh, the, the, if you go into my page, there's that email address there, which is academy at flaviolife.com. Easy to remember. 
So I'm um, I'm more than happy to talk to anyone who wants to talk about any of these topics by all means. Yeah, and I say again, you know, thank you for coming on and and speaking so openly and and you know it's it's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, I know you're all, all all the way over there in in Miami. Um, what is it? Seven hours, seven hours between us. But yeah, so I'd like That's to right. yeah, so I'd like to say thank you for coming on, and um, it's been brilliant talking to you. And I hope we can stay in touch. I'm looking forward to that. Thank you so much, Andy. Thank you for staying up late. I know it's late for you. Thank you so much. <laughs> no and, problem. And congratulations on the awesome work you're doing. Thank you. Right, that was men are nuts. And I'll see you next time.